don't know how to get there. And uh, while they're leaving, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 138. That is this morning's psalm of choice. In this summertime, we have been going through selected psalms, and that has not been by accident or simply because this is my favorite book. But as a, as a leadership team, we have discerned the need for not everybody, but um, most of us who know a lot about God to, to have that knowledge penetrate the heart. And the psalms are about the heart, about the affections, and how God's people are to live and react and respond and to live out their faith in all kinds of difficult circumstances. And so um, Psalm 30, 138 excuse me, is the psalm um, for this morning. Well, some of you know this and some of you don't, but um, this past week was a collision of backpack trips here at Parkway. Um, Right now, this weekend, they're getting ready to come back, but our fathers and sons are up at a place high in the Sierras called Island Lake, and um, they have been there for now three days, and so they're away from us. And at the same time, so that's the father-sons, at the same time, we have had a group of of daring teenage uh, high school girls decide that they're going to go backpacking away from toilets and away from blow dryers and outlets. And um, they went up to a place about five miles as the crow flies uh, east of there called Lower Lola Montez. And um, I actually have a picture of the brave few souls who decided to do that. Um, You can tell it's beautiful, but I just got hats off to ladies who will go to a place without a bathroom. That's amazing. So that's two backpack trips. But then um, this last week, also, the high school guys, are easier to be a guy and live out in the woods, as you may know. Um, but a, a group of 22 uh, people went up with the high school guys, and from Monday to Friday, we're up at a place called Five Lakes Basin. It's about a six-and-a-half-mile hike in. And I have a picture of that, too. These are all the guys. I see a lot more of these, these clowns. That um... Anyway, I had to choose which one I was going to go on, and, and uh, I went with, with these guys. Uh, left Monday and came back a little bit early on Thursday so I could prepare for this morning. But... Uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing going backpacking. I like the outdoors, but I don't like backpacking that much. Um, sleeping on the hard ground, uh, waging war against squadrons of mosquitoes, and, uh, and you know, staying up late at night playing games. Um, but it was good to soak in the glory of God's creation, and I'll tell you something else. Now, Tony Tiemann has told me that God is, his spirit is stirring in, in our high schoolers. Uh, up to this point, I haven't seen it firsthand. But in the time that I got to spend with these guys up in the, in the woods, and I have been doing this hike for 12 years, I have never seen a kind of spiritual fervor, not on the part of every single individual who is there, but as a whole in this group. Um, to hear the humility as guys would share around the campfire some of their struggles and some of what they want to see God do in their life, um, to hear some guys lead in worship, with a sense of abandonment, like they didn't care what others around them were thinking, I was just very deeply encouraged and challenged by what the Spirit of God is doing in our high schoolers, and it was a privilege to be there. But I want to tell you what my favorite memory was. My favorite memory was on the hike in. As I said, six and a half miles, and the first part's downhill, but then we hit this grueling uphill. Um, it's called Sand Ridge, and it's totally exposed. There are no trees, so the sun's beating down on you. It's like the movies. You hear that 
music and you see a picture of the sun and then the person wilting and you see the sun and a person wilting. It's exactly what it's like. And at the top of this ridge, is, it's about 7,000 feet elevation, 7,500. And uh, we're a bunch of sea level dwellers, you know. And so we're making our way in this sun-beaten path and just, you know, you're just plotting with this pack, and I, as much as I try to make my pack lighter every year, it just seems to get heavier. It's about, probably, I guess, about 80 pounds. So we're all slogging, you know, just up this trail, and then stopping and breathing, gasping, hydrating ourselves, and we continue this march. It's like a death march up this, up this ridge. And I don't remember when exactly it was, but all of a sudden I hear somebody singing. I'm like in, thinking in my mind, this is the pessimistic side of me. What in the world is someone doing singing when I can barely breathe? And I'm in fairly good shape. And up comes kind of bouncing along the trail, Jared Rohr. He's led worship here a couple times. He, he has this instrument that looks like um, a combination hybrid guitar and ukulele. And he comes up next to me and goes, hey, we re- did this new rendition of Light of the World. And we're going up, you know, on this... Wilting. He's like, light of the world. And he's going just right on up. And uh, he never stops. He just, just passes everybody up. And I'll tell you, in that moment, I never wanted to kill anybody more than I wanted to kill him. I just, I didn't really feel that way. But, but he got to the top, or we got to the top where he was, and this is what he looked like. He's just laying down with his <laughs> guitar not even tired, and he's still singing. And one of the guys, I didn't come back with him, but said he sang all the way back, too. So it's interesting, you know, bounding up like a deer with his little guitar and singing. And um, it, was a, it was an interesting picture and reminder that everything in life is to be about worship, whether or not it's difficult, you're breathing hard, or you're having a hard time walking. It was just a good image of, here's a hiker, the bouncing, worshiping backpacker. That was the image. That was my, one of my best memories. I'll share another one in a second. But that really um, leads us in a direction that I believe Psalm 138 leads us to and to a topic that is um, very popular and that there's a lot of hype about, and that is the topic of worship. I don't have to tell you that there's just a lot of hype about worship. There's worship conferences, worship music as a genre, if you can call it a genre, is exploding. Uh, you know this. I mean, I've bought some of this. Some of the uh, most prolific wor- or Christian writers right now are actually worship pastors. And I know some of you have bought the worship CDs, the passion CDs, and so forth. And it's just so much music being written because people are enthralled with this idea of worship. We have Spirit West Coast, and a lot of you have benefited from that. And a lot of it is wonderful and good, and I have benefited from it. But it kind of raises a question for me. Personally, and I think it's more important than just a personal one. It's a it's a corporate one as well. Is it possible? Here's the question to wrestle with: Is it possible to get so wrapped up in the trappings of worship and the emotion of worship and the music of worship that somehow God is missed? Is is it possible to love worship and not the Lord? Well, I believe that is possible. Not everybody is guilty of it, but it's possible to fall in love with worship without necessarily falling in love with God. So I would like to use um, Psalm 138 as a corrective, or for some of us it might just be a reminder as to what is the basis of true worship and what is it that should characterize true worship. On what is it based? Um, 
because I believe we need to stay centered as we seek to worship. And it, just for those of you who don't care about worship, it's not a really big topic to you. Um, I don't think there's many like that. But, you know, that's a, our eternal destiny. And it will be and should be the best thing in life is to stand in awe of a God who is beyond imagination and to worship him not just standing in a sanctuary, but to worship him as you work and to worship him as you parent, to worship him in your marriage and to worship him whether you're at play or on vacation or or whether you're just sitting um, quietly. is to worship the Lord. That is our eternal destiny. That's what we're supposed to be doing in this life and that's what we're supposed to be doing in the next life. So it is a hugely important topic, theologically speaking. So let's, let me bring us to Psalm 138, and we are going to, if you will, take a little journey on uh, what it means to worship. Now let me begin by reading, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go. Psalm 138, it's a psalm of David, so it's written by King, King David. This is what he writes. He says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and with your right hand you deliver me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. What I'd like us to do is I'd like us to kind of take a journey through three different levels of worship. Think of this as a journey to the center of praise kind of like journey to the center of the earth, only this is journey to the heart and to the center of praise. And as I said, there's kind of three layers that we're going to excavate. And the first one is the expression of worship. That's kind of the surface layer. How does worship express itself? And this psalm gives us some pretty good ideas. He starts off, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. And before the gods, I sing your praise. That's with the voice. In verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple. That's with his body. Here King David reflects for us that worship, I believe, and he shows us, is um, a response of the whole person. It's not just with the voice, but it's also with the body. He bows down. And also with the heart. He worships or gives thanks with his whole heart. So he gives thanks. He praises God. That's a way of reflecting just how great and awesome And full of splendor and majesty God is by the way that we speak, by the way that our heart responds, and by the way we even physically respond. So that's his own example of of expression of worship. It involves all all parts of the person. But then as you get later on, move on down the psalm, you realize in the second part of the psalm that he looks forward into the future. And it's not just him that's going to be worshiping this way. It's going to be all the kings of the earth. In verse 4, he says, All the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. By the way, this psalm really cuts in two nicely. The first part is David as the Jewish king, his own experience of worship. And then, beginning in verse 4, he talks about all the kings of the earth and their worship. And they are parallel. Both give thanks and both sing. And both ultimately do so for the same reason. 
And the point to be made simply is this, that worship involves the whole person responding to, to, to who God is in praise and thanksgiving and, and acknowledging the fact that he is good in everything that he does, which is why we give thanks and gratitude because we're acknowledging that he is the source and the origin of all that is good. That's worship and that's how it expresses itself. Now, most of us are familiar with that expression with the voice. We just got done expressing praise with the voice. Some, perhaps most in here at this point, are familiar with some level of bodily worship. That is, you don't mind raising a hand or or getting on your knees from time to time and worshiping the Lord. We're familiar with that. But the one important one to just stress and remind each of us of is that the kind of worship that is acceptable to God and that is not deformed is worship that comes from the heart. David says, I give you thanks with my whole heart. It involves the affections. It involves how we feel about God, not just what we think about him. So that's, that's, that's what worship is. It's a response of the whole being. It's voice and body and heart, all of that. Now let me just digress for just a moment and talk about the heart because all of us, I think, know that worship must come from the heart. How is it that you worship in a way? How can we come into this place and sing songs like Hosanna without just singing the words with no heart? How is it that the affections can be engaged so that you're singing Hosanna with a sense of yes? And here is, I think, the beginning of where that comes from. It comes from God awakening a taste in you, a vision, so to speak opening of the eyes, in which we taste something. He, he, this is regeneration, by the way. He awakens us so that we taste that God is good in a way that we feel. And the only way we can truthfully respond to these commands to praise the Lord, bless the Lord, ascribe glory to the Lord, and so forth, is to have that taste awakened so that we want to. In other words, when the Bible commands us to praise the Lord, it's not calling us to this kind of hollow conformity to some biblical standard. It's calling forth in the heart of people he is working in to express the goodness that you've experienced. Or Let me use an analogy. Because if I told you right now, you know what? Isn't the water that comes off of the glacier up off of the Black Buttes the best water? Most of you would sit there and go, huh? If you're courteous, you might say, yeah, whatever. No heart in it whatsoever because you've never tasted it. You've never been there. But for the few guys who walked up there and dipped their Nalgene bottles into this fresh water coming right off the slopes of Black Butte, freshly melted, and have tasted its crisp, clean, pure quality, right now you'd be saying, yes, it is because you've tasted it. When the Bible calls us to worship, it is calling us to express something we already enjoy because he's awakened it in us. And until that happens, true worship really doesn't happen. So the commands in the Bible are simply soliciting, calling for something that God is already doing in the heart. David had already tasted the seed that the Lord is good, so when he praises the Lord, it comes from that place that has been awakened. He's tasted and known that it's good. So that's where it comes from. Deep in the, in the wells and the springs of the heart is there's this taste. And then in, in life we learn to nurture and, and to love it more. And then worship comes out of the heart, then through the voice and with the hands and with the feet and so forth. That's the expression of worship and the deep root 
of the heart that it comes out of. Now, that's layer number one. But what is it that the Spirit of God gives us taste buds for? And what is it we taste that causes us to want to worship? Not just feel like, oh, I ought to, but I want to worship. That brings us to layer two, foundation, stone. Layer two is simply this, that we worship based upon what God has and does do for us. That is his works of grace. What he's done for us, what he does for us. His gracious working in our life. That's foundation two, what he does. Now he lists in this psalm four different ways in which God's grace tangibly shows itself in his life in the present tense. First, verse three, it says, on the day I called, you answered me, and my strength of soul you increased. On the very day he cried out to the Lord, the Lord gave him strength in his soul. So he acknowledges that God met his prayers. He heard his prayers. That's a tangible showing of God's gracious hand in life by the answering of prayers. Second one, verse 7. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Now, we don't know what the trouble or adversity or difficulty was, but he's acknowledging that God's preserving grace was there. He's continuing to help him to live and to believe. So God is answering his prayers. He is preserving his life. That's the second one. Third one, he says, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. He's talking about deliverance, that God is graciously delivering him from his enemies. By the way, that... That, that image of you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and with your right hand delivers me, that's an image of God going, no, and I'm going to deliver you. Pretty potent. God does deliver his people um, from physical and spiritual enemies. If not in this life, then certainly the next. And then the fourth tangible work of God doing something for him and that he does for us, is the fulfillment of his purpose. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. So he's confident that whatever purpose God has for David's life, ultimately it's in the hands of the Lord to fulfill. These are four, you want to call it, tangible ways that God's grace is working for David in his life. Now when we think of God's working grace, we oftentimes think exclusively past tense. I think we all acknowledge in here, unless you're just visiting and you're not a believer, that God worked graciously at the cross by punishing his son instead of us and through the resurrection giving us life. That that is, that is grace. And to be certain that is the fountain and the basis of all God's gracious working in, in human life is on the basis of the cross. We also recognize that God in the past tense poured out his spirit. That was a historical event, and we experienced the spirit because he gave us the spirit in the past. Those are redemptive events. Those are God's working in past, and they are the foundation. But we often don't acknowledge that on the basis of that, God continues in the present tense to meet us in the specifics of our life. That he cares about the details. That he, he does answer prayer. Now, we say that, and we may know that intellectually, but to, to know that our God is here and he listens to us better than sometimes our spouse listens to us or that the, the doctor listens to us, is we know that he listens. That when you're in the middle of, of, of chaos trying to deal with a, a defiant teenager and you're wits end to know that, God, you care about this situation, so I'm going to lift this up to you. 
or to know that he preserves you. That's the other one. That whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty, whatever um, emotional turbulence, whatever financial issue or chaos that there is, that, there, that he preserves you. He is in the present tense right now graciously showing his, his goodness by bringing you here, by giving you another breath of air, another drink of water. He is preserving you. So we see his grace preserving us, and today we can say God preserved us. So we answer his prayer, he preserves us, that he does deliver us. As I said, from all physical and ultimately spiritual enemies, if not in this life, then the next. That he does, in the present tense, protect his people. He's protecting me right now from spiritual harm, and you too. His hands are around you. He's got you in the right, and he's got out his left. And then the realization that, you know what? God is fulfilling right now. He's fulfilling his purpose for my life, and he is for yours as well. And just to know that God's grace is right here, right now, and he is fulfilling his purpose in your life. You know how much weight that releases off our shoulder to think that I have to find and then make God's purpose for my life work. David's able to say, you will fulfill your purpose for me. And I want to underline, it's his purpose for you that he will fulfill. Not yours. So you have these, these tangible ways in which God's grace works in the present tense for his people. And if we believe that he cares about the specifics and is involved in ordinary daily life and decisions, then you're not going to have a hard time worshiping because you're going to see him moving and answering and preserving you all the time. I told you my favorite memory was Jared skipping up the mountain with his guitar, but that wasn't actually my favorite. Before I left on that little four-day backpack trip, because I took my 13-year-old son going into eighth grade, and we haven't connected very well. And so I went up into the wilderness with him and them for one primary agenda. And that is I just wanted to connect with him on some spiritual level. That's what I wanted. And so I prayed. And I asked others who know me, will you pray too? And pray very specifically that God's grace will meet us up there in that place, that time. But in a way that's natural and, and not forced. Because I want it to be the spirit working it and not me forcing it. So... It was day three, Wednesday, and I knew people had prayed. I had prayed, but I was just waiting. And um, it was in the later part of the day, and I walked up with a book. I separated myself from the group. I walked up, I don't know, five, 600 yards, and I sat on a, on a rock. And I was reading a biography, Amy Carmichael. And, um, and the sun was getting ready to go down, and nobody knew where I was. And I looked over, and it just kind of scared me for a moment, but there was my son. He sought me out. He left the group, where did dad go, and he, he came up and he found me. And the first words out of his mouth, he goes, Dad, I have a question from Proverbs. I said, really? Well, what's the question from Proverbs? And he, he read a verse and he said, I don't understand this. So he sat up on the rock. We talked about the wisdom of Solomon, which led to conversations about life. And we watched as we're talking the sun go down over the granite bluffs. And we connected. 
And um, I didn't let him see this, but later, after we had parted, I, I blubbered. You know why? Because God was good in that moment, and he answered a prayer of mine. And he showed himself to be, he's just like, Dan, I am not so distant. I hear you. And, and when I blubbered, it was a, it's just, I just felt broken in a sense of joy, like, God, you're too good, and I am not deserving of this. Those were, that was a worship moment. It wasn't hard for me to give thanks at that moment. It just kind of poured out. Because I had seen firsthand that he is good. And you know what? He's like that. Every day he's like that. Every day he preserves you. And are you able to say, yes, you have preserved me yet another day. That he is and will answer your prayers. You may not see it happen in your timing or the way that you perfectly understand. But he is listening and he's all around us and he's working graciously. And when we have eyes to see it and hearts to believe it, worship's not hard because we see his grace at work. In the present tense, because of what he's done in the past tense. So when you see God working like that, conversations at work, new opportunities, it's not hard to worship. So that's, there's the expression of worship. You can't just start there. So expression of worship, heart, voice, and body comes from seeing and experiencing God's gracious work in your life and the lives around you. But there's still something deeper. Kind of that third stage. This is going through the crust, now through the mantle, and into the core of worship. And what prompts worship at the deepest part isn't necessarily what God does, but who He is. God works graciously because He is gracious. God works lovingly because He is love. And to get heart to heart that this is who God is at the core of his being, that, that erupts that affection that desires to make its way out in voice and, and, and hands and knees to worship the Lord, is coming heart to heart with who God is. And that is the very core of worship. It is the core of this psalm. And here's the core. David says, verse 2, and it's going to be, Restated in verse 6, he says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. As a word we've seen a lot. Your relentless, immovable, irrevocable love that loves sinners and triumphs over death and failure. I give thanks to your name because your heart is a heart of steadfast love and faithfulness. It's really getting the fact that God does love his people in the midst of their failure that brings this deep, welling up sense of worship. Now we've heard a lot about in the past days, steadfast love. So let me move on to the counterpart in verses 5 and 6 that I think spell out or explain the nature of his steadfast love. And this is the part in the psalm, by the way, that just stopped me and why I wanted to to teach from it. Because in the second part of the psalm, when he stops talking about his own experience of worship to someday the kings of the earth, he supplies what causes them to worship as well. 
Verse 4, I'm going to put this in context. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. And now here's why. For, here's what causes kings and nations to sing. For great is the glory of the Lord. So it's the massiveness of God's glory that compels them to sing of the Lord. Now that doesn't sound earth-shattering. We've heard about the glory of the Lord before. So what's so great about the glory of the Lord? Verse 6 goes on to explain what is great about the glory of the Lord. And this is the, to me personally, may not be riveting to you, but it's riveting to me. For great is the glory of the Lord for, now he's going to explain what the glory of the Lord is, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Though the Lord is high, he regards the low. You've got to stop and take that apart. Because he's using the distance of God's height in comparison to our lowly insignificance to show just how glorious God is. That though he is high, he regards. That is, he cares for, he's compassionate, he, he, he looks to the needs of the lowly. Though he is high, he regards the lowly. At this point, you just have to stop, as, as, as I did. I, I stop and I think, oh, so, so how, how high is the Lord? I mean, that deserves to be meditated upon. I mean, Psalm 113 puts the height of God, the transcendence of God, in this way. It says that the Lord looks far down on the heavens. And you know, with the, with the Hubble telescope, we can look deep into the heavens upward. But the sense of Psalm 113 is that God has to get on his hands and knees to look at what telescopes can barely see. Now, it's metaphorical. The Lord is not confined to his species everywhere. But it gives a sense of the altogether mysterious transcendence of God that, that he is so high. He's beyond understanding and comprehension. And without, it can't be fully understood. And without him revealing himself, we couldn't know anything really about him. That's how high he is. That even what we have here in the Bible, the wonderful, precious treasure that this is. This, in terms of revealing God, is like looking through a straw at the universe. Is the Bible sufficient? Yes. Is it exhaustive? No. Is it infallible? Yes. Is it adequate to capture and comprehend God? Absolutely not. This is just like looking at God through an eye of a needle. I mean, I even think of words like, this is Psalm 96, where it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Eh. Like the word great, G-R-E-A-T, five letters. Can you imagine these five letters actually capturing the greatness of God's? It's like, when I was thinking of this, it's like trying to take a single roll of Christmas paper and wrapping the entire earth with it. Or the universe. It just doesn't do it. You can spread the G-R-E-A-T as much as you want. It's just not going to capture him. And without the imagination to recognize that that word is just the eye of the needle, you don't get a sense that God is, is utterly, completely, indescribably awesome. That's like how high he is. It's beyond description, beyond capture, beyond definition. So that's how, how high he is. But then it says, but he in his exalted transcendent position where 
we talked about last week. He holds the entire universe in the palm of his hands. Again, metaphorical for the fact that we just don't even have a clue as to how massive he is. I mean, words in scripture like also Psalm 96, it says, Splendor and majesty are before him. They don't define him. It's as if he wears them because we can't understand what's behind splendor and majesty. Until one starts to feel the mystery of the presence of God, one doesn't understand the height and transcendence of all that he is. But, and here's the glory part of it, the God who is high regards people who are low. Insignificant little creatures like us, little bipeds that walk and we bleed. We can't even see an economic collapse coming. Like somebody could have figured that out. Can't figure out how to like stop an oil leak at the bottom of the ocean when we knew how to drill through it. I mean, completely insignificant, and if you really think about it, pretty powerless. He regards the lowly. Think about this. The Lord cares about a retarded girl in an orphanage in India. He loves her. The Lord loves and has compassion and regard for the flittering emotions of an unborn child. That the Lord cares for the discouraged housewife who's had it up to here. That the Lord cares about the desperate cries of a drug addict. He cares. Though he is so high, he cares about the little things and the little people. You know what he's describing? He's describing God's mercy and his love. And you know what this psalm is? When it says that though he is high, he regards the lowly, it's nothing but a picture of God who, though he is high, would come and put skin on himself. A skin that can bleed, a skin that has nerve endings that can feel pain and bruising, laceration, nails, penetrating hands and feet. That he took upon himself the brain of a man and a soul of a man that could feel human rejection and feel human betrayal with all of its weight. To breathe our dirty air, to walk the dirty roads, to wash dirty feet, to take sin that was not his, to bear it, and then to die our death for us. That's how far God who is so high descended. This is a picture of Jesus, who is, who is the love of God personified. It's, it's God who is great, revealing himself. It's, it's one who, though he existed in the form of man, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, so he humbled himself, he took the form of a man, even a slave, he obeyed his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. So high, so low. And, when, when by the Spirit of God you know that that is the intensity and measure of God's love for his people as messed up as they are and to know that it will never be taken away your heart wants to sing because this is the heart of the Lord This is the heart of God who, though he is high and can blast the universe into particles in a breath, 
he cares about circumstances and people, sin and death. And when you come heart to heart with that reality of who God is for us in Christ as expressed here, that is the center of where worship comes from. Knowing the character of God, His grace and love, seeing how it works itself out and in listening to our prayers and in preserving our lives and in uh, protecting and delivering us and also in fulfilling His purpose for our lives. And then we're able to express with voice and with heart and with hands. Thank you, Lord, with my whole heart. And before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down before your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. For though you are high, you regard the lowly. But there is one final challenge. Those are the three layers. There is one final challenge that should sober all of us. Is that the ones who receive in this psalm, the ones who receive this regard, the Lord regards the lowly, the, one who receive, the ones who receive this mercy and the, one, the, the, the attention of God's compassion are defined as the lowly, as those who are humble as opposed to those who are proud. Notice the text very clearly defines who receives this kind of attention and therefore who, in receiving it, offer up worship to the Lord. It is the lowly. And that is not a word that, is, um, that speaks to financial placement, social status, or power. Because David is the one writing this who was king, who had both power, prestige, and wealth. Rather, it's speaking of the disposition of the heart that the lowly recognize that we are absolutely nothing. And everything we do is absolutely 100% dependent on, on grace all the time. And it's only when we experience that humility and we have that disposition of the heart to recognize that there's nothing really in life I can take credit for. That then we experience the intense kind of worship that he's talking about of knowing God's love and seeing how God works and then expressing it. That means pride gets in the way of genuine, intense worship. And the dangerous thing about pride is that an arrogance and haughtiness, and it says there that the haughty he keeps from afar, he regards the lowly, haughtiness he keeps from afar, is that what gets in the way of our worship is our own pride. And what's dangerous about it is most of us don't even know we have it. It's a silent, subtle, invisible thing that oftentimes we can't see in ourselves, but gets in the way. But God in his work, if he loves you, he is going to strip that away through life. In many respects, the journey of life is a journey towards absolute humility. To recognize that, you know what, this talent that I have, it doesn't belong to me. It didn't originate from me, so how can I ever take credit for it? Or my financial success that I have or haven't had, it's, it's the, it was given by the Lord. It can be taken away from the Lord. Ultimately, it wasn't my, my financial prowess that got me the money. Ultimately, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He gave it to me. So I have, therefore, no reason to be proud in it. 
to realize that everything is dependent upon him and ultimately he gets the credit for all that we do and all that we think and all of our, all of our, our, our talents. Then, then we get the sense that, oh, wow, everything is dependent upon him. And you know what God uses, at least he uses in my life, and I see it in other people's, to bring and expose these areas of, of hidden pride. He brings, he brings hard experiences. And I told you five weeks ago that I sprained my ankle pretty bad, thought it was broken, wasn't. I'll tell you what, I learned something about myself that I didn't know. And that is how hard it is for me to let somebody else serve me. There I was, shouldn't be walking. My wife said, you need to sit down and let me take care of you. And I'll tell you, I have a really hard, I didn't know I would, because I haven't sprained my ankle a whole lot. But I had a really hard time accepting that from her. And at times I would force myself to give up, walk on my heel, and take care of myself. And I frustrated my wife, and rightfully so. And I think she was probably thinking about the fact that, Dan, if this is how it's going to be when you get old, then we're going to have some serious issues. Because at some point, you're going to have to let somebody serve you. And it was at that moment I realized, at least in part, the reason that happened was to expose an area of pride in my own life. And it's as if the Lord said, listen, Dan, You have more arrogance about you and your own self-sufficiency than you think. And Dan, I'm going to crush that pride, not because I'm angry at you, but because I love you. And I want you to experience more of me. And it seems to me that God often brings difficult circumstances into life if for no other reason than to bring out those areas of pride that need to be crushed. So people, for example, who don't know that they have been arrogant because of their wealth, and God pulls the rug out from under them, only to make them realize that they had tied their worth to what they own, which is an expression of pride, and the realization that you can't just make wealth out of nothing. Part of the point is to realize that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He gave it and he took it away and to reveal areas of pride. To those who have been guilty of intellectual pride, sometimes God will bring something into your wife, that your, your, your life that you can't understand. You're left thinking, Lord, how, how could you do this? How can this possibly work into your plan? I, I don't understand it, and now I don't trust you. And the Lord's saying, you don't have to understand. And if you think for one moment that you can comprehend my work in your life and my purpose in this pain, then you are a little more arrogant than you think you are. You don't need to understand. Humble your intellectual pride and trust me. I bet there's some here that have that. Sometimes we're proud as parents. We don't know it until that son or daughter who we poured our life into decides to walk out the door of home, church, and God and do things that you know and they know you shouldn't do. And you're left feeling embarrassed. And in those moments realizing, wow, maybe perhaps I put too much stock in my own investment in my child. And God reveals that pride, but he does so in love. Because he regards the lowly who get that. And the haughty he keeps from afar. So part of life and part of, I think, proportionate to our experience of genuine worship is the proportion of our humility. 
when God brings us in our hearts to the place where we know that everything is yours. Everything comes from you, and ultimately everything's going to be offered back to you. My time, my strength, my ankles, my family, my job, my wealth, it's all yours. And so I live on the basis of your hand of grace and provision, your preserving power every day. Then you're going to find a heart to worship the Lord. Because everything will be a gift at that point. So this has been about worship, the layers of worship. But understand, worshiper, if you're going to worship the Lord in a way that receives the intensity of his love for you and then reflects back in our voices, in our hands, and our hearts, it requires us to get to a place of nurtured humility and the maintenance of that lowly disposition of life of knowing everything depends upon him. Then you will learn how to worship as David did. Will you pray for that? This is a courageous prayer. Don't pray it. Just pray in the silence of your own heart. We pray, Lord, will you reveal areas of pride? And if you know what they are, ask the Lord in his grace and love to crush them so that you might get closer to him and that you might experience more of his love. So spend just a couple of seconds here just asking the Lord for that humility that you might be the kind of worshiper spoken of here that knows God's heart, knows God's works, and expresses it with your heart and with your voice and with your body. And then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we ask you to do a work, a gracious and merciful work in our hearts. First, I just pray for those who who come and know that their hearts are far from you, that there is no affection whatsoever in the words that they sing. They come out of a sense of tradition or because their wife comes or kids come or they just know they should. Lord, whatever's holding them back, whatever they have either against you or someone else, I just pray that you would isolate and reveal the pride connected with that and you would bring them to a place of freedom of letting it go being honest and saying Lord I want you back I want I want the fullness of your love to be experienced in my heart again and so I give whatever it is to you Lord I pray for those in painful situations just pray that they would reach up with open hands and just know that you love them exactly where they are. That you aren't sleeping, you're not off on vacation, but you're there. You know the situation and the pain and you're loving them in it and through it and you will preserve them and you will hear their cries. I pray that you convince them of that so that they know, as David knew, that even in the valleys you are with them and you will protect and deliver and fulfill. Lord, help us to let go and to humble ourselves before you as the almighty God who loved us enough to come in flesh and blood and die for us. And that may it grip our hearts and allow us the freedom of worshiping you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
revive and renew and refresh your people with a new sense of humility and a new sense of awed, astonished worship of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Used to